0: would uh, take a Bible with me and uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, so if you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the pew Bibles and you can find it on page 923. Bible. It was good to see the parents with new children this morning up here so we could pray for you. and we. We do that so that the congregation as a whole can see who the new children are and commit to caring for them and and walking alongside these families. It's not something we can do uh, alone. And so uh, have those people in your mind this week. Pray for them. Serve and dig in the nursery ministries uh, and and help come alongside of of, of these parents as they they raise their, their children. Acts chapter 15, I'm going to start reading God's Word in verse verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we believe in order to be saved, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord... for the, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that it would do a great work in our hearts, that we would be amazed that simply by trusting, All that Christ is and has becomes ours. And it's in His righteousness that we stand. Father, I pray that this would also encourage those who are riddled with guilt day in and day out who are exhausted in their strivings, that they would see afresh. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And it would free them and liberate them to serve you with greater zeal than they ever have before. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to Acts fifteen and we hit another controversy in the church. uh, Luke will often set the ideal before the church so that we know what to strive for, but he's not afraid to tell the whole truth. He doesn't whitewash uh, the more messy aspects of church life. And in doing so we should be all the more convinced that Acts is a trustworthy account. Uh, The early church wrestled with serious issues, both practical and theological. Acts 15, as a chapter, has two parts uh, that answer two big questions. Uh, What's required to enter the kingdom of God? And how does one live... Once in the kingdom of God. And we'll address only the first question uh, today. What's required to enter the kingdom of God? A baseball team has certain requirements for you to play. A university has certain requirements for you to register. An employer has requirements before they hire you. Countries have requirements before you can pass through customs. We're used to asking this question. What's required for me to enter? But among all places and institutions and organizations that we can enter, only one matters most for eternity. The kingdom of God. The kingdom is where God manifests His presence... And his rule with his people. His kingdom far surpasses all others in joy, glory, beauty, satisfaction, riches, peace, duration. What's required to enter his kingdom? The Bible teaches that we're all born outside God's kingdom. We're born in Adam, and that means we we enter the world in revolt against God's kingdom. We're banished from His kingdom, and we'll never see its light or know its life by our own doing. So, if we're to enter God's kingdom, it must be on God's terms. How does one enter? That's a question the early church wrestles with here. Paul and Barnabas, they they finished their first missionary journey Uh, in Acts 14, 27. You know, they they declare how God had had opened the door of faith to to the Gentiles. All these Gentiles were coming in. But some of the Jewish Christians aren't so sure about Gentiles entering so freely. And Luke mentions their issue twice. Verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Uh, again, in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I'd hope that if someone entered our church and asked any of you, how can I enter the kingdom of God, you would be able to tell them by faith in Christ alone. Full stop. But some Jewish believers here couldn't say that yet. I mean, if you asked them, it was faith in Christ, yeah, yeah, plus circumcision, plus food laws, and so on. Now, it might be easier for us to judge, like, how in the world could this come up? But we've got to understand how deeply ingrained their commitment was. For centuries, the law was their life, their identity, their pride. Some were Pharisees, passionate Jews, now Christians, wondering how the law functioned. But not just that, God had given the law, God had commanded circumcision, it was part of the covenant. The big question then for these Jewish believers is whether anything has changed since the coming of Christ. Some didn't think so. But were they right? Are the Gentiles required to keep the law of Moses to enter God's kingdom? Do they need circumcision to become part of God's people? And all of your ears better be perking up because I don't know many Jewish people in here. You're Gentiles. The answer to these questions is a resounding no. And the next three speeches tell us why the answer is no. This first speech is Peter's. Peter demonstrates that God saved the Gentiles by grace through faith alone. He saved the Gentiles by grace through faith alone. So he recalls first that God sent them the gospel. The good news, verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's talking about the, the, the previous episode with Cornelius. Right? And, God gives Peter a vision and God teaches Peter that he shows no partiality and God has Peter preach the gospel and Cornelius and his household believe in Christ. God then gave them the Spirit, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. If we think about it, what happened in Acts chapter 2? Peter preaches the gospel, Jews believe, and they get the Holy Spirit. And now the same thing was happening in the gen- to the Gentiles. Peter preaches the gospel, the Gentiles believe, and just like the Jews did, they get the Holy Spirit. And they didn't get circumcised first. Right? Not okay, we're gonna baptize you, we're gonna take you over and get circumcised, and then they'll teach you about the food laws, and then you'll get the Holy Spirit. And how it worked they believed, they get the Holy Spirit. They didn't become Jews first, they get the Spirit simply by believing in the gospel, and by giving them the Spirit while they were still uncircumcised, God Himself was testifying. They didn't need circumcision at all. Further, God cleansed them without distinction. Look at verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. None of us can enter God's holy presence covered in our moral filth, our, our rebellion but through faith in Christ, the Spirit applies Jesus' death to us and and the benefits of His death, and He washes us from all that makes us guilty before God. God doesn't grant that cleansing based on circumcision, or law-keeping, or because they were of the Jewish race, And that's proven by the fact that he cleansed Gentiles simply by faith. They have no circumcision to show. All they have is faith in Christ, and that's all that matters for entering the kingdom of God clean and forgiven. And that's true for all peoples everywhere without distinction. God sent the gospel, God gave the Spirit. God cleansed without distinction. What's Peter's conclusion? You best get out of God's way. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? So this is serious business. They're testing God with this teaching, provoking His wrath. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our Father's Nor we have been able to bear, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we believe in order to be saved, just as they will. The last part reads a little differently in the ESV, but the translation I just offered is, is making the point clearer about grace and faith. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we believe... In order to be saved. So one is saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. And even the faith. Is a result of God's grace. You may have heard the formula before. Jesus. Plus anything. Equals nothing. Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Only the second is good news. The first formula is really bad news. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This is really bad news. It, It robs Christ of His glory by saying that His righteousness isn't good enough. It needs something more to to dress it up. And it needs something from us, of all people. It also says that Christ's coming really didn't fulfill the old covenant after all. That old law guardian, I'm pulling from Galatians here, that old law guardian is still in place and everything is still imprisoned under sin. It says that your circumcision, the cutting off of your flesh, is better than Christ being cut off in your place. I can imagine Peter kind of, we know Paul does it, walking up to some of these Pharisees and, and you know, saying, you boast about what's up your own robe, instead of grabbing hold of Christ's robe for your right standing with God. And the end of that life will be wrath and fury from God. Peter points out another piece to the picture, though, here. Jesus plus anything is bad news because it places the Christian under an unbearable yoke. Think oxen yoke being weighted down. It's unbearable because sinners lack the moral ability to meet the law's demands. Sinners lack the moral ability to meet the law's demands. The law demands perfect obedience in every point all the time to enter God's presence. And more than that, it condemns us wherever we fail, but can never save. That's a burden. That's a huge burden. Where does freedom come? Oh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ fulfilled the law... ...even as that law related to something like circumcision. He was cut off in our place. And it's through His death that Christ bore our curse... ...and the condemnation that the law says is for us, it fell on Christ. Christ's righteousness that He obtained alone is sufficient to make us right with God. And that makes Christ our only access into God's kingdom. Nothing else and nothing additional will grant us entry into God's presence. This is all God's doing. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's kind of the gist of Peter's speech. The second speech is by Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Luke shows that that God authenticates the Gentile inclusion with signs. God authenticates the Gentile inclusion with signs. So verse 12, all the assembly fell silent... And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they read what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I won't say much here because we've already covered this uh, several times in the last few weeks. Uh, But signs and wonders and acts have an authenticating function. And here they authenticate the Gentile mission So in the same way that God had performed signs among the Jews, He was performing the same signs among Gentiles to show that He was manifesting His kingdom among both Jews and Gentiles. That both Jew and Gentile were welcome in without distinction. Circumcision wasn't needed. And then comes a third speech here by James. James recalls Peter's words, but adds a crucial support. God promised the Gentile inclusion in Scripture. God promised the Gentile inclusion in Scripture. Verse 15. He says, with this... He he grabs... Verse 14, rehearses what Peter just said, and he says, with this, the words of the prophets agree... Just as it is written, After this I'll return and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now that quotation comes primarily from Amos 9. Uh, Amos 9, verses 11 to 12. And if you've read Amos uh, lately, he's not pulling any punches. For nine chapters, he doesn't pull any punches. He hammers Israel for their sin and their idolatry and their injustice. In fact, Israel looks just like the rest of the nations and that's why God would judge them. They had God's law... But surprise, surprise, they could not keep it. He even compares them to a basket of rotten fruit that ought to be thrown out with the garbage. In other words, Amos' prophecy is filled with reminders of how Israel couldn't save themselves by the law. Imagine that quotation ending up in this dialogue. If they couldn't save themselves by keeping the law, then how would they be saved? And that's where Amos chapter 9 comes in, verses 11 to 12. Right at the end of the prophecy, dark with condemnation, there's this ray of hope. It's about God's future grace. God's future grace would work to save them. And James mentions two aspects in particular. One is God's grace to restore David's kingdom. Verse 16. I'm going with a quotation here in, in uh, Acts 15. So this is verse 16. After this, I'll return. So this is God promising a future return... To save His people, God's going to come. And when He does, He says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. When Amos is talking, David's kingdom is on the brink of destruction, but God would come and restore the kingdom. Just like he told promised David that he would do. Your throne, your house, your kingdom is going to last forever. God's being faithful to his word. He's going to come. He's going to do this by grace. And how does the book of Acts demonstrate that fulfillment? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Right? We've been here multiple times. Uh, Acts 13 was back to back to back Old Testament quotations proving that Jesus was the newly installed Davidic king. Psalm 16, Psalm 2, and Isaiah 55. Jesus has been installed as the forever king on the forever throne to build a forever kingdom. He rules over sin and death, and He's bringing God's kingdom on earth. God is rebuilding the ruins and restoring His people through Jesus. And what does that include according to to verse 17? That's the second aspect of God's future grace. It includes God's grace saving Gentiles as Gentiles for His name. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So what we find here is that when God's future grace works, it's not just going to work on behalf of Israel, but all peoples. He's going to pull a people for His name from from everywhere. Every tribe and tongue and nation. James couldn't help but see the connection here. All these Gentiles streaming into the people of God through Peter and Paul and Barnabas' ministries, they're coming because God has once again been faithful to His Word. God's future grace was present in Jesus, the true Davidic King. He was working powerfully to build His kingdom and save the Gentiles quite apart from the law. And so James concludes this way in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we shouldn't trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Meaning, we don't need to trouble them with circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. Neither get them into the kingdom. Faith in Christ alone gets them into the kingdom. And then he says this. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is kind of beginning the second part of Acts 2 that I I was telling you about. And we'll look at this more carefully next time. Uh, it's a difficult few verses, but suffice it to say for now that he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying in one breath, don't trouble them with keeping the law of Moses. And in the next, well, they need to keep these things in the law of Moses. Actually, he doesn't ground the commands in the law of Moses at all. Verse 21 is simply explaining the great difficulty Gentiles will keep having as Moses is read everywhere all the time. The command itself comes straight from the apostles. And it's essentially this. You must renounce your idolatry and sexual immorality. That's what this list represents here. Idolatry and sexual immorality. When you, when you look at them together, we'll, we'll see this more Uh, next time, but basically, he's saying kingdom people live for kingdom things. New life in Christ means giving up your old pagan ways. And that'll be the major focus next time we're in Acts. But for this week, let's close with a few points of application here. For starters, Acts 15 helps us see that the apostles' authoritative instruction Regulates the church, not the law of Moses. The apostles' authoritative instruction regulates the church, not the law of Moses. We can see this in that the law of Moses commanded circumcision, but here the apostles tell the Gentiles it's not necessary. For the old covenant community, the law of Moses was their authoritative guide. Okay, the law had covenantal authority over God's people. But the law played its governing role only until the coming of Christ. That's what that's the argument Paul makes in in Galatians three and four. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant. And that new covenant now regulates the church. What is the new covenant? Your New Testament in your, in, in, in your, in your scriptures. Acts is a great place to see this, this uh, what we call a redemptive historical transition taking place. Okay, that, That's also why you see the church. What are they doing when they gather together? They're devoting themselves to what? Do you know from Acts 2? The apostles' teaching. Not the law of Moses. The synagogues were doing that. This new community is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that doesn't mean we disregard the law. That doesn't mean we disregard the law of Moses. That doesn't mean the law of Moses is now less important. That doesn't mean the law of Moses is now less authoritative. Rather, we just can't read that law, that law covenant, apart from how the apostles interpret it and apply it to the church under the new covenant. So you'll see them quoting all over the place from, from the law, in the letters and whatnot. They are They are taking that Old Covenant and saying, and this is how that stuff applies since the coming of Jesus. So reading it this way will keep you from making the same mistake the believing Pharisees made here. Right, they misunderstood the law's role, and they tried to regulate the church by what was already fulfilled or abrogated in Christ. Right, and this will help you. It's very practical. I mean, it'll help you in in the public square. I mean, you think of what do you see a lot of Christians doing, for example, with with uh, the the, the Homo- same-sex marriage debate and all that and somebody some Christian jumps in and just throws something from Leviticus out there like here God hates homosexuality and, and then somebody else jumps in and is like yeah well if you're going to say that why aren't you circumcising your children and cutting and why are you cutting the hair on your face and wearing mixed cloth and everything else the laws say and then what happens nothing Because the Christian abused the law, and the other guy is responding to a bad use of the law. Christians have to think, like, okay, what do we see Jesus and the apostles doing with the law, right? And on something like that, they're using the law, and and they're showing that law about, say, homosexuality or other things, is actually grounded in the created order well before the law was even given, and so you see Paul laying out things in Romans 1 and whatnot. That's how you make the argument. Got to think better. This is very practical. Read how the apostles used the Old Testament and apply it to the church and morality and other things. And that means you've got to read the, read the Bible, right? And every time you, in your quiet times, and you're trying to get through your year-long reading plan or whatever, and somebody quotes from the Old Testament, just be like, "Well, I got to get through my reading plan." No, go to the Old Testament. What are they quoting? Why, and how? You won't know how your Bible fits together, or how this or that Old Testament passage applies or where you're at in God's redemptive story unless you devote yourself to the apostles' instructions. You'll end up reading the Old Testament moralistically instead of through God's ultimate revelation in Christ, whom it all pointed to in the first place. Uh, Second, hope in God to preserve the gospel and renounce any teaching that that compromises the gospel. Hope in God to preserve the gospel. This controversy, I mean, it could have gone really bad. Badly. You have the the false teaching itself. You have people within the church spreading the false teaching within the church. And then you have these competing cultures and ethnicities, Jew and Gentile. This has all the trappings of a total disaster waiting to happen. And yet the Lord just amazingly orchestrates the whole matter so that the whole church ends up uniting. That's, that's what we're going to get to. The whole church makes this decision alongside the apostles and the elders That gives me great hope that God can do the same when we walk through difficult matters. Or when we are encountering things like even in the the public square of of racism and questions like this in, in the American culture. Like, I have great hope for the church of Jesus Christ. Because God reigns there and if we the more we're giving ourselves to the gospel and what it's truly teaches the more we will be united at the same time we have a responsibility to the truth Uh, notice the church doesn't strive for unity at all costs right they don't they don't get together and be like "All right, what's the got the Pharisee guys over here what's the lowest common denominator between us all and we'll agree on that that's not what they do no being true to Christ meant renouncing any teaching that compromised the gospel they united in denouncing the idea that gentiles had to be circumcised to enter the kingdom of god and likewise we must denounce any teaching that compromises the gospel the gospel is always being is always being threatened right threatened muddied twisted and not just out there in here, that's look. This is in the church, in Acts fifteen. It's in our own hearts. We are capable of twisting the gospel to make it more suitable to our desires. And if not careful, instead of letting the gospel mold us, we mold the gospel to fit our way of living and the way we want to do church and who we don't want to be here and who we, who who we want to keep out. And in the end, of course, the gospel we form is no gospel at all, and it leads everybody to destruction. So let this passage remind you to unite in renouncing false gospels, if not articulated, lived out. Third, the Davidic king has taken his throne. Jesus is spreading God's kingdom. God is taking a people for His name from all nations, so let's join the Lord Jesus in gathering that people for His name. Let's join the Lord Jesus in gathering that people for His name. I know that you know this because I've mentioned it nearly every other sermon since we started Acts. Acts constantly rehearses the resurrected Christ in the Gentile mission, so you'll likely hear it again and again. But here's where I want to exhort us more directly. Let's be doers of the word and not merely hearers. It may be that Acts has renewed your vigor to share the gospel with friends and family and coworkers and strangers you meet. I give thanks for people like Dale and, and Wes and Nate and Kristen who model evangelistic zeal, who faithfully preach Christ to those they encounter. But I long for such zeal to characterize the whole church. I long to see new converts baptized and, and growing in the faith. I long to see our members so thrilled with prayer and making new disciples that they forget they even have a Facebook page. What are we living for? And is it worth dying for? Acts 15 reveals what God is up to in the world. And right now, He's gathering the remnant of mankind. And He's calling them out from all peoples for His name. So let's join Him by sharing the Gospel with those Gentiles. Some of you are taking notes. I want you to take your pen, circle verse 17, draw a line over the side of your margin, and write down two people you want to share the Gospel with this week in light of that text. What Gentiles... Might God be calling out for his name and using you to do so? Fourth, as you share the gospel with others, remember that salvation is by faith alone and not by works. Salvation is by faith alone not by works. Even even Christians as we see here can be prone to forget this. What started as a mission to bring someone to Christ can quickly turn into a mission to make people just like them. You know? Sure. You can enter the kingdom of God by faith alone. As long as you lose the lip piercings, don't wear your hat backwards and vote Republican. It may sound ludicrous, and perhaps we wouldn't even use those words, but sometimes we don't even realize how much our cultural commitments warp our gospel call. Acts 15 teaches us that we can't be adding requirements for salvation. All God requires is faith in Christ alone to enter His kingdom. And when people trust in Christ to save them, they get the Spirit and they get cleansing from sin the same as us. How can you tell if you've forgotten that salvation is by faith in Christ alone? Well, by whether you relate to God through the cross or through your own doings. You know, instead of resting in Christ, you think you've got to play well to justify your acceptance. You came in by faith alone, but but now you think, I've got to keep up the ball game to justify my acceptance. Or you think that as long as you don't look at porn, lie, or steal, uh, or anything like that this week, then you've protected yourself well from judgment. The thing is, nothing you can do or ever do can earn your acceptance with God or your protection from God in the first place. Christ must be everything. We must relate to God, not through our own doings, but through the cross. The Lord's Supper is a great test for this, isn't it? You know, if you think you have to go through a bunch of rituals to get yourself ready to eat, you may have forgotten that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. His righteousness is enough. If there's anything to do in coming to the Supper, it's simply in receiving what He has done for you, in full. He doesn't need your anything additional. And also, if there are other believers in this room that you struggle to eat the Lord's Supper with, then you've likely forgotten that salvation is by faith alone. You know, at some point before Acts 15, you know, even Peter forgot that salvation was by faith alone. At some point, Peter was eating freely with the Gentile Christians in Antioch. This is Galatians 2. And then all of a sudden, some Jews show up, and Peter fearing the circumcision party, drew back and he separated himself from the Gentiles. He didn't want his old Jewish buddies to see him associating with them. After all, Gentiles didn't have the badge of circumcision. He might have said with his mouth, faith in Christ alone. But he lived a totally different way in that moment. We have sole fide on the back of our church, but are there ways we live that show? We don't really believe that. Paul has to rebuke Peter for this. He said that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, community will often press us to see if we really believe the gospel or not. How about your conduct? Is your conduct, that is, the way you treat others in the church, no matter how much they're not like you or do things not like you, is your conduct in step with the truth of the gospel that salvation is by faith in Christ alone? Or is there maybe a little bit of Jesus plus something else that you're requiring of others? Acts 15 turns us away from such conduct by pointing us to a much better gospel. The good news is that all that Jesus is and all that Jesus beca- uh, all that Jesus has becomes ours simply by faith alone. He and He alone is our entry into the kingdom of God. Faith in Him is all that God requires to enter His kingdom. Jesus' life, death and resurrection are totally sufficient to save. So let's come to the supper with Christ as the sole object of our faith. Let's come as the old Christian hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling.